Welcome to The Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedeckes. And now, get ready to think. This is the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective. And my name is Joel Sedeckes. If you don't know me, I am a theologian. That means that I help explain what God is like and help people understand him and know him better. And a quick housekeeping item, the Hammer and Anvil Society is launching its brand new cohorts starting in January. The Hammer and Anvil Society is the sinister saintly society of the Think Institute. And the mission is to help you understand, explain, and defend the Christian message and to make a decisive impact for Christ's kingdom in your community. Now, these cohorts are small groups of people that meet together and uh, they meet together to study, discuss, and live out biblical teaching. They are led and taught by yours truly and facilitated by you. If you want to sharpen your skill in studying the Bible, thinking biblically, or defending and uh, fulfilling your piece of the Great Commission, you can simply go to thethink.institute slash hammer and anvil today. Now, let's get into it. The doctrine of the virgin birth is a doctrine that is held dearly by Christians and often ridiculed by skeptics. If you want to learn how to explain and defend the truth of the virgin birth, this is the conversation for you. And um, that's because my guest today is the Reverend Dr. David Instone Brewer. And um, I'm having him on because of this brilliant book, which I just recently um, read through. And in today's episode, you're going to find out how the insults that were leveled against Jesus point to the truth of the virgin birth. You'll also learn why the followers of Jesus simply would not have made this doctrine up. Reverend Dr. David Instone Brewer, who is the author of Church Doctrine and the Bible, is a research fellow at Tyndale House, which is a research library in um, Cambridge, England. He himself is a former Baptist minister, and he's the author of multiple books, not just Church Doctrine and the Bible. And in this episode, you are going to hear Reverend Instone Brewer unpack the biblical account of the Virgin Mary and the birth of Christ in a way that's going to help you see it in its ancient context and is going to, Armstone Brewer, unpack the biblical account of the Virgin Mary and the birth of Christ in a way that's going to help you see it in its ancient context and is going to really help strengthen your theological and apologetic backbone. And um, so really, I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled to have him on the show. Without any further ado, please welcome the Reverend Dr. David Stone Brewer to the podcast. David, welcome. Hi, it's great to be with you, Joe. Well, it's my pleasure, believe me. And um, I am I'm so grateful for you taking the time out of your evening and joining us. And, and uh, it's two o'clock p.m. in Chicago. What time is it there in uh, in England? Oh, it's only about eight p.m. So it's a it's a nice night here. Wonderful, wonderful, and and. Uh, um, you know, maybe you could share us a little bit of your story, David. Um, you've really got quite a, a fascinating story as to how you came from local church ministry and and the work that you do now with uh, Tyndale House. But maybe you could give us the brief synopsis of who you are 
and how you came to work at Tyndale House and what you do now. Well, the more interesting story is before I became a minister, because uh, that was a, a big drag of uh, me through lots of different things because I wanted to not be in the ministry and <laughs> uh, got a different uh, idea. So I actually did four years of medicine uh, before uh, medicine and me decided we weren't going to go on together. And uh, I've uh, done lots of other jobs. Uh, my in most interesting job was I uh, six months as a professional hacker. Hackers really? are good people as well as bad people. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> lots of professions. Uh, microbiology technician, salesman. Uh, yeah, lots of different things. But uh, uh, then I went into the ministry. So my son, my oldest, wants to be a hacker. That's what he wants to do. So he's learning how to code. And, uh, and you said you did that for six months? Well, I, I was on a contract. Uh, this um, firm had the Turkey of the Year Award for their terrible software, and the programmers had gone off with the code. So they needed someone to uh, do what it says at the beginning of every bit of software uh, terms and conditions. Do not, uh, uh, do not reverse engineer this. And I had to do that in order to create the code for the program and then to hack it and to correct all the, the wrong bits without having the, the, the source code to work from. Well, that's that's simply incredible. So how how much of that work ties into what you now do with the, uh, the, the Tyndale House? Well, I'm very much into computational linguistics now, which is using the Bible, using computers to help me uh, learn about the Bible and tie up the original languages with our translations. And I'm aiming to produce code which will automatically tag a foreign Bible to the Greek and Hebrew that underlies it. Wow, that's really incredible. And I was doing a little bit of homework on you, and I found out that you developed a word processor that would type from right to left for um, essentially for Hebrew and, and Arabic. And that was before Microsoft or anybody else was on that. Is that correct? <laughs> that's right. Yes. Most of the synagogues in the UK used my program to write their uh, weekly newsletters and universities used it for their Hebrew papers. Uh, yeah, before Microsoft did. Well, that that's really amazing. I hope um, I hope that uh, Microsoft is paying you heavy, heavy royalties for uh, <laughs> for that. I needed it to write up my thesis, which was uh, had an awful lot of Hebrew in it. Well, okay. So if you're listening to the to the show or, or watching it, you can see why I wanted to have David on the show. I mean, just um, it's not every day that someone just needs a word processor that can write from right to left and just invents it and just just uh, creates it. So um, you see the caliber of guest that he is and, and the caliber of thinker. And, and that's really why I wanted to have him on to talk about this doctrine of the virgin birth, because I read this book, uh, David, I read your book, Church Doctrine and the Bible, put out by Lexham, and uh, it was put out this year. And I've got to say, it, I one of the things I really appreciated about it is you, you seem to unpack these ideas in a way that is independent, at least of any denominational um, identification that I could identify um, based on my context here in the States. So, you know, there were times when, you know, you seemed, uh, you know, to, and toe the line is not the right word, but where it seemed like, uh, you know, what you were saying was, was in line with this denomination. And then um, something else you would say, 
seemed in line with this other denomination over here. And it just, it struck me as being very independent in its, uh, in its nature. Is that something you did intentional intentionally, or is that just the kind of thinker that you are? It's partly because of my ignorance. So I know nothing about anything between about 200 AD and 2000 AD. Okay. But I live in the first and second century. And that, that's where I, that's the people I was writing for. The New Testament believers who suddenly got this new stuff about Jesus and they, they, they don't know what to believe about it. And the New Testament is given to them. And I'm seeing the New Testament and the Old Testament to a great extent through their eyes and seeing what well, what would they do with it? How would they understand it? What's mm. their terminology? How do they understand this word? And what did what was doctrine like in those days before the theologians got hold of it? Okay, so so that that sort of return to the first century and um, and BC cultural milieu and and the original context is something that is really seeming to uh, be experiencing a resurgence right now. You've got uh, N.T. Wright, uh, who's doing that. You've got Michael Heiser, who's doing that. Um, I actually had Michael Heiser on the show. Uh, Dr. Heiser and I talked about demons. Um, I've had um, uh, Patrick Schreiner wrote this brilliant book on the resurrection. Uh, he's, a, he's a scholar down at uh, Midwestern Theological Seminary. And so... Um, I very much ap appreciate that. And I think our listeners are going to appreciate hearing about the virgin birth from sort of the original first century context. But um, for your own story, where did your interest in tackling theology in its original context and its its cultural milieu, where did that come from? Well, when I went to do research at Cambridge, I wanted to look at the way in which Paul interprets the Old Testament. Uh, in comparison with the way in which the rabbis interpreted the Old Testament at the same time. And then I found that no one had actually worked on that. No one had actually isolated the rabbis of New Testament times and looked at how they used the Old Testament. So I ended up reading pretty well everything written by the rabbis that can be dated that early and uh, understanding them. And they became my friends. So now when I read the New Testament, I'm reading it through their eyes and seeing, well, what's it saying to them? How is Jesus talking to them? Is he insulting them? Is he debating with them? And what's the language he's using? He's, they, they understood him better than we do because he was speaking to them. And uh, it, it just transformed my understanding of the New Testament to see it through their eyes. And you studied them so much, you say that they be, you felt like they became your friends. Mm, yeah. I love that. You know, it, when you mix with enough rogues and you meet them and meet their wives and you see their children, you, you become friends with them, even yeah. if you don't quite like what they stand for. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. And you've written numerous books. Um, prominently, you've written about divorce and remarriage, which, um, you know, your section in, cult, in Church Doctrine and the Bible on divorce and remarriage was very helpful. It's something that I myself... Um, I'm, I'm a former pastor myself and, you know, that's one of those pastoral issues that every pastor is going to have to face. And, you know, I, I really appreciated your chapter. Um, but having written so much on family issues and things like that, why, why this book and why now? Well, partly because I've got the freedom now. I, I've now taken early retirement, which means I still have all the facilities at Tyndale House, and I still have a post there. They don't pay me. 
but also they don't tell me what to do so I can spend all my time on the things I enjoy doing which is at the moment stepbible.org which is a, a great way of reading the Bible and using all the powers of your computer to do so for free and also that's biblecontexts.com that's con more than one context Bible contexts where you'll find uh, the, uh, how many volumes there's, there's six books there and uh, three of them are already available and another three coming uh, taking the context of the Bible and seeing the Bible next to the things at the time and also next to our time and putting the Bible back into our lives and seeing how it fitted into their lives and that's my excitement so I if I'm excited about it I write about it man that's incredibly liberating to be able to do the kind of work and research that you are excited about man, praise God for that opportunity um, as you were as you were determining which doctrines would go into this book, um, uh, church doctrine in the Bible, how did you choose which doctrines you would include, David? And why include the doctrine of the virgin birth? Well, I chose the ones which we have problems with, or the ones which theologians, in my opinion, have changed over the years, where it's become quite complicated. Mm. <laughs> you know, different theologians came up with different ideas and I I'm a kind of Baptist back to the Bible person and I want to see everything as it is in the Bible and forget about all these later developments and I found that uh, di people didn't see that in the same way and uh, that's that was interesting to them so hey if it's interesting to them I'll let them read it yeah yeah certainly so the big idea that I'd love for us to tackle today is the internal evidence the scriptural evidence that the virgin birth really happened. And so in your section on the virgin birth, which is uh, chapter eight, and um, it, it's not overly long, but it's, it's packed with really good information. And there were two main arguments that you laid forth in terms of internal scriptural evidence for why the, the doctrine of the virgin birth is nothing we ought to be ashamed of. Mm. Um, but before we unpack those two main arguments and, and any other arguments you want to bring to the table, could you just identify for us and, and explain what is the doctrine of the virgin birth and why is this contested? Well, you had a very strange situation. You had a lady who wasn't married and very young, probably in our eyes, uh, who was pregnant. And uh, she said, and the, the man that's decided to marry her uh, despite all the objections of his family i'm sure they both said it's nothing to do with them uh, th th there's no hanky panky uh, it was god who made her pregnant and this right. is such an incredible story such an unbelievable story such a ridiculous story and yet there it is and it's in all four gospels quick what are you doing to disciple your kids Catechids can help. Catechids is a little book with 100 simple questions and answers to help parents teach their young children the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, to lead them to faith in Jesus, and equip them to walk in the Spirit every day and love God. I wrote Catechids for my own kids, and they love it. It's become a tool that's been blessing Christian families and churches far and wide. Get Catechids on Amazon today or by going to thethink.institute.
This episode is brought to you by the Christian Culture Builders Group on Facebook and MeWe. Believers in Jesus optimistically working to create great commission hubs for the propagation of the gospel, the furthering of Christ's kingdom, and the emergence of robust, fruitful Christian culture. We work through the three spheres of authority, the family, the church, and the state, and the pillars of influence in society to make it happen. Check out the Christian Culture Builders Group on Facebook or MeWe today. And why is it so contested uh t- today why is this you know this is one of those doctrines that still to this day is often ridiculed or or at least greatly misunderstood well uh, it, you, you say it's ridiculed today it would have been ridiculed just as much in their day it was a ridiculous thing to say uh, i mean it, it's it, it's it's wrong on all sorts of grounds the mm. the, the jews they didn't they didn't believe in miracles they're a bit like the cessationist christians uh, but miracles happened in the Old Testament. They didn't happen anymore. And there, there are just a couple of Jews that we know of that actually believed in real miracles for their time. And Is that so, right? Yeah, yeah. Eric Eve wrote this uh, wonderful PhD on miracles, which is uh, published now as a, a good book. Uh, Eric Eve. Eve as in Adam and Eve. Okay. He points out that miracles in the first century were regarded as with great skepticism by Jews and especially by uh romans greeks because the, all the new religions that came up they all claimed to be wonderful religions because of miracles and people mm. just laughed at it and he tells some hill in lucian you find some hilarious stories about some of these miracles that started off new religions uh, and they, this was comic literature because people realized it was just all fooey so when the church fathers tried to tell people about jesus they kept quiet about his miracles because they knew that that wasn't going to convince anyone and they talked about jesus as a great teacher and a great moral example but not as a miracle worker that wasn't going to sell the gospel at all that's that's really fascinating because weren't there purported miracles that one of the caesars supposedly could could do if it was augustus i forget who it was but one of the caesars purportedly could heal people was that not was that not a part of their worldview? I, obviously, I don't believe that, but wasn't wasn't that part of the the Greco-Roman worldview? Yeah, yeah. There, there, there are all sorts of strange, fanciful stories told. Uh, you, they're recorded in Suetonius and, and in Tacitus, and you can tell from the way in which they're being reported that hey, you know, this is the propaganda. We've got to say it, but <laughs> wink, wink. Got it. People, people were. Uh, they regarded intelligent people as people who didn't believe this sort of thing. They were skeptical. It's the people on the streets, you know, you've got to keep them happy. Caesar is divine, so obviously he has to do miracles, uh, but, you know, we're sophisticated. Right. So so it's almost as if they, these reports from Tacitus or, or uh, whoever, it's almost like they had their, their, their little fact check um, uh, label underneath the post. Okay, yes, Caesar did so-and-so. <laughs> this miracle happened, but, you know, these claims have been disputed by uh, reputable <laughs> historical uh investigators um so, oh, so this, they just had a chuckle <laughs> well that's that's really fascinating i think a lot of people will be surprised to know that the first century worldview was not one that really allowed for miracles because i think oftentimes in my interactions david with skeptics atheists they sort of lump anybody who lived during the biblical era whether old testament or new testament in with these you know they'll call them 
you know, first century goat herders or cave dwellers who believed in all sorts, you know, miracles were happening all the time. And, and, and you're saying that wasn't the case. No, th th there was one rabbi, uh, Rabbi Honey, who said, oh yeah, yeah, I can bring rain down from heaven. And uh, he um, prayed for rain and uh, vindicated himself by that rain coming. But they almost mm. excommunicated him for it. They, they really didn't like that sort of thing. Wow. Well, that's that's really uh, incredible to hear and makes it uh, creates an even starker contrast in terms of the background in which the virgin birth happened. So in your book, you mentioned two really solid reasons to believe in the virgin birth, uh, despite its sort of outrageous nature. Um, the first one has to do with the insults that Jesus received throughout his life. And the other one has to do with more common sense. Could you tell us about that first reason and then we'll move on to the second one? Yeah, I, I said that all four gospels refer to the virgin birth. It, it, because the virgin birth was a problem, one way in which I learned as a salesman, I, one of my career, uh, careers which didn't do so well was selling stuff. Mm. And uh, I was always taught if there's a weakness in the product, then address that weakness straight away. You know, if the car goes slowly, you say it's sedate. <laughs> the oh. house is small, you say it's compact. And so that Luke and Matthew, they bring to the front the virgin birth. They say, ah, yes, yes, Mary was very special and Jesus was very special because of the virgin birth. Those people have heard of it and they, they got to do something with it. So Matthew says uh, the, the virgin birth made Jesus more part of the establishment, you know, and Herod was interested and it made him the kingly line exactly correct. And Luke says, well, it made him more part of the ordinary person because Luke is the great social reformer. You know, the mm -hmm. poor people are important. And so, you know, Mary was amongst the poor people and the shepherds and they, they make a virtue of it. But Mark, he, he doesn't mention it, except when Jesus goes to preach in Nazareth, they say, well, who is this guy? He's the son of a carpenter. Well, actually, he's the son of Mary. Mm. And they never mentioned Joseph's name. They called Jesus, Jesus Ben Mary. Now, right. Jewish names, they always got the father as a surname. So I would be David Ben Noel, because my mm -hmm. father was called Noel. Uh, and uh, the Jews are always called after their fathers. There's a few cases where you don't. If your name is Simon, Simon was so common, they named you after the place or your particular enthusiasm. So Simon the Zealot, Simon from Galilee, uh, Simon Peter, <laughs> Simon the Rock. Uh, if your name was Simon, you didn't have a patronym. You didn't, weren't named after your father. But everyone else, we've got, we've got hundreds of rabbis and other people named in Jewish literature. And they, none of them are named after their mother like Jesus was. And that was an insult. That was a, that, that was um, a, a throwing, throwing the, the piss pot in your face hmm. to say Jesus Ben Mary. Wow. And it, in John, it's even worse. <laughs> in John 8, you've got a heckler as Jesus is giving this wonderful address about uh, how he's the son of the father and how the father loves uh, people and he's sent Jesus to come and save them. There's, there's this heckler who's saying, hey, hang on a minute, you, you, you're, you're no one to talk. He, he, he says, um, in, in verse 19, he says, where's your father? Mm, people in the, in, in the crowd, they're going, what's, what's he talking about? Well, haven't you heard? You know, they, they, haven't you heard about him? He doesn't have a father. 
And uh, then he says, and what's your name? I, you know, who, who are you? Uh, <laughs> hoping that he'll say Jesus' son Joseph, which is his proper title. But uh, he didn't let on like that. And then he says, this heckler says again in verse, um, uh, in verse 33, he says, we're sons of Abraham. We're good Jews, you know. And then he, the, the heckler finishes off in verse 41 with the killer line. He says, at least we're not illegitimate. Mm. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, all four Gospels have to deal with this, and it's a big, big issue. So now the, the, this ridicule then, okay, so Jesus was, was maligned. Jesus was insulted. Uh, but David, you say that this points forward, or this points toward the truth of the virgin birth. Why is this not just evidence that Jesus was illegitimately born? Well, it's, remember, it's not just the Gospels who are saying this sort of thing. You have the same uh, sort of thing in rabbinic works. Um, Jesus being called the son of Pandera. Um, and uh, then you have to, by the third century, they're not quite sure who this Pandera is. And they're asking each other what perhaps it means. So it goes back uh, quite some time. Probably goes back to Eliezer ben Hyrcanus from the end of the first century. They're saying that Jesus was born from a Roman soldier. You know, it was a rape or, or, or Mary just misbehaving. And it, it's everyone. Everyone is saying this. And it's something that the church has to grapple with and do something with. And the church isn't denying it. The gospel writers don't deny it. And so you have to think, why? Why don't they try and cover it up? Why don't... And, the question I asked myself was, um, mainly I'm an ancient historian, the, my whiting hair is making that title more and more apt. <laughs> Putting uh, the ancient in ancient historian. That's yeah. it, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, as a historian, you have to say to yourself, how would a human being react in this situation? What would they do? And the question I ask is, what lie would I tell if I was Joseph? What's the best story to get away with? What's the best story? And the, the idea of saying a virgin birth is it's just so, so difficult. You know, you, mm. you, you end up being called uh, a blasphemer by the Jews or, or uh, be, even worse, you're, you're told, oh, well, that's like those Roman gods. They had virgin births. So you're going to be telling one of those pagan stories. The worst thing you can call a Jew is a non-Jew. Right, right. And it's, it's just so difficult to get away with. And as I said, it's just unbelievable. So the other lie he could tell is to say, hey, Mary was raped. And mm. I'm really sad about that. And I'm standing up for her and I'm marrying her. You mm. know, have, have some sympathy for me. And I think that would work. You know, these things happened, especially with the Roman soldiers around. Sure. As you said it's it's an adulterous generation. This Roman, the Roman occupation brought terrible, terrible moral degradation to Palestine with uh, prostitution and things. Yeah, and so yeah, and and Jesus even um, you know refers to that sort of thing, and he says, if someone forces you to walk a mile, walk the extra mile. You know, you were in a context where the Roman soldiers could force you to walk a mile with them. Uh, they, the, the Jewish people's rights were uh, degraded. They were denied. They were under um, a form of occupation and a form of tyranny. And so this idea that Mary 
could have been raped by a Roman soldier. That, that really was not beyond the pale. That was actually very realistic. Yeah. And so, it um so so this this reality that we see in scripture that Jesus was not Joseph's son is really the setup then for the second argument, which is really nobody would have made this doctrine up. Is that right? Let me tell you the lie that I would have told. Okay. If I was Joseph, I would have said, well, you know, there's a little bit of, we sort of got to bed together one night and one sure. thing led to another and you know how it is. And what can you do? She's so beautiful. And uh, so she's pregnant. And they would have been embarrassed by that. They would have got a slap on the wrist for that, but virtually nothing else. To have a child before you're actually married didn't mean that you had a bastard. If you had a child uh, for, for someone you're not married to at all, that's a bastard. And that was really serious because then they couldn't take part in uh, any synagogue things. They couldn't go into a temple. They couldn't do uh, uh, um, religious things that, you know, that needed cleanliness for 10 generations. Wow. Um, yeah, they took it seriously. But if it was just some hanky-panky before you actually got married, well, you're still uh, a valid Jew, and uh, that, that you weren't called a mamzer, a bastard. And Jesus wasn't called a mamzer. But, uh, yeah, I would have told that lie. I would have said, hey, we, 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 um, we got uh, over-enthusiastic, and uh, yeah. lo and behold, Jesus came along. And right. there, there, there wouldn't have been any problem. And you know, he would have been welcomed home. This, uh, the, the town would have been, but hey, you know, we love them. <laughs> but uh, no, no, they didn't even tell that lie. So, so there, you've got Mary and Joseph and Jesus, not to mention his brothers and sisters, as well as their extended family, willingly taking on ridicule, scorn, questions, uh, uh, snarky whispering behind their backs, willingly taking this on, um, that if, if the virgin birth weren't true, they would have no reason. Basically, any explanation is better than coming up <laughs> with, with this, especially when you, when you factor in. Now, this is something that's really amazing to me. At one point, you've got Jesus preaching in a house, and Jesus's mother's, uh, mother and brother's come to him and essentially they they think he's crazy and they're going to collect Jesus and bring him back home so the 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 uh the attitude that you see from Jesus's family is not oh here's the god man who is the messiah he's the savior <laughs> of the world and therefore we need to concoct this half man half god story where the you know it's like one of those ancient pagan stories of the gods coming down no, it's they're not trying to come up with this miraculous story. If anything, they would really like it if Jesus would just sort of be quiet and, mm -hmm. and would kind of keep it down. They're not trying to come up with this grand uh, pagan myth mm -hmm. for him. So there's really, there's no reason, it seems like, to, to create this virgin birth narrative like the Egyptians had, like the Romans have, if it weren't something that was just actually true. And these are just honest people sort of just reporting what honestly took place is that right yeah and they're not saying it's a virgin birth they're saying well, well this happened oh we don't know what it is but that's what happened um, right it, it, they're telling the truth uh to great uh, which is causing them great problems
I, I don't think his brothers and sisters would, would have um, gone along with it. We, we don't get any indication that they were followers. Later, of course, then you have James and Jude. But I think before the resurrection, there just wasn't uh, anything. You don't get any indication he's getting any help from his family. And you have Mary sort of following along and being a, a comfort and being, um, yeah, but it, hey, it's my son up there after all, you know, it's, <laughs> but uh, uh, support from the family, no, my way. It was just such a big problem. I'm, it's the, the, the biggest thing is Jesus going round unmarried. Hmm. It, it, you don't think much about that, but it, the very first commandment that any Jew had to obey was the first commandment that's written in Scripture, and that says, "Go forth and multiply." And it was the right. duty of every single Jewish man to find a wife and have children. Uh, it was such a strict thing that the rabbis even debated: how many children do we have to have before we can? give up this sex thing <laughs> right so how does the fact that jesus was unmarried factor in with the the broader discussion of his parentage and and the virgin birth who's going to marry him hmm. how could he get married if he was a well he wasn't a mamzer he wasn't a bastard because in order to be officially a mamzer you had to have two people as witnesses of the act of conception <laughs> really <laughs> which that seems a little very often. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right good grief yeah that seems like a a, a tough bar to clear um so 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 this is all i'm sorry go ahead david you were yeah. going to so, so who's going to marry him you know uh, 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 the no doubt mary and joseph wanted him to get married but uh the, anyone they approach would say, "Well, I don't want my daughter to marry him. I've heard about him. He's not. He's not kosher. He's not. You know, he's not actually a mamzer. He's not actually a bastard. But he, he's not official either, is he? You say that he's not yours, so he must be someone else's. Wow. So they're creating complications. Yeah, he's ours. We we did it." A little bit too soon they would say oh mm. fine well, look come come and come and meet my daughter she she, she loves him okay and so so they're creating um they're creating unnecessary quote-unquote complications mm. by sticking with this story and they're just they're just they're sticking with it because it's the the best explanation based on the evidence here is that it's simply true well they're, they're gonna have to stick with it and stick with it especially mm. when jesus gets to the age of 20. Hmm. Now, the, the, the rules of the rabbis, they were quite strict. If a person isn't married by the time he's 20, was usually they got married in their teens. And if he's sticking out and not getting married, even in his 20s, then you don't let him sleep next to another man. You don't let him teach children on his hmm. own. And you don't let him look after animals on his own. And you can fill in the reasons for that. Sure. Well, that's that's really fascinating. So, uh, it it reinforces for me this incredible. I mean, Jesus is Lord, and and I love him, but just the respect I have for him as a man, how he just did not fear men. He did not fear the the ridicule or the um, disapproval of men, and you really see that from his 
from his birth straight on through to his death and resurrection. He just, this is not a man who cared about what people thought of him in, in the sense of their disapproval of him. I wouldn't say that he didn't care. He was human. It would have hurt. Hmm. He was despised. He was rejected. And okay, that so must hurt. But, okay, fair enough. But it didn't, it didn't affect him in the sense that he changed his behavior the way that you and I might, or, you know, speaking for myself, um, wanting people to, to like me or, or approve of me, uh, is gonna, you know, it's going to impact the way that I, the things that I say or the, the way that I act. Whereas Jesus really, he was on mission. He knew what he had come to do. And, you know, you bring up a good point. Sure. No one likes to be despised and rejected, yeah. but Jesus didn't change his story because of that no he even had to create some theology to make room for himself uh, there were two reasons why you could be a eunuch you could be a eunuch because uh, something happened at birth or you can be a eunuch because of an accident that happens afterwards and jesus had those two forms of eunuch he's listed those two and said or you can be a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven mm. but you can in other words, not get married and serve God. Nevertheless, even though you've got done that sort of sin of not obeying the first commandment, mm. you can nevertheless serve God in his kingdom and be a eunuch for the kingdom. He had to invent that category to fit himself in. Well, that's really amazing. I never thought about that. Um, and, and of course, that still has implications, pastoral implications today mm -hmm. for marriage mm -hmm. and singleness. So... Uh, David, we had a, a question come in, and then I got—I had a few other questions from folks on Facebook. And um, if it's all right with you, I'd like to go ahead and transition to answering a few of those questions. Sure. Okay. So the uh, the first one to come in here. This is from Chris Johnson, who's watching on YouTube, and he asks this: Would the Jews have expected a virgin birth given Isaiah seven fourteen? No, it's, it's, it's one of the prophecies which you can understand in retrospect, but planning ahead, you just wouldn't predict it. It's, it's like Psalm 22. You look at it, it's talking about all these animals, you know, the bulls of Bashan and the dogs and the lions, and uh, you, it looks like it, Jesus is dying in a, a circus, in one of the Roman circuses. If you were going to predict what Psalm 22 was about and you knew it was about Jesus, you'd say he died in a Roman circus. Uh, but then when it happens on the cross and it's the, the, the dry tongue and the, the bones sticking out, and it, it's obviously crucifixion. But, and these are just metaphorical animals. But you don't know what's metaphorical. You don't know what's literal in a prophecy. And when you see the prophecy of a young girl, uh, a, yes, unlikely to be a virgin because she's not married in Almar, but it, there's no emphasis on her being a virgin and actually having a child and then before that child is uh, two or three years old, then this other thing will happen. No one would have found the prediction of the virgin birth there. But after it's happened, then you go, whoa, hang on, that passage was a bit strange, wasn't it? Whoa, I can see what God was on about. Well, sure. And, you know, uh, coupled with that is Isaiah 14 is is also fulfilled in the immediate context mm. with the, the conception and birth of Hezekiah. Sure. And so it's not until Jesus is born, until the Gospels are written, where, you know, people could look back and go, oh, it wasn't just about Hezekiah. It wasn't just about 
a woman who happened to be a, a virgin when it was written, who then gave birth to Hezekiah. It, there's a double fulfillment here. Um, speaking, of course, about Mary. And so you're saying that there would not have been, based on that passage, there would not have been that expectation. Well, there's the possibility because the Greek translators, perhaps about 200 BC, uh, translated that Alma into Parthenos. Uh, so it's mm -hmm. a virgin who conceives. And that is rather strange right. using that language. So some people might have looked at that language and thought maybe something strange is going to happen. But that, that really is a long shot. And most Jews, they reckon that uh, the church has changed the Septuagint to say Parthenos. It didn't really say that because the Hebrew doesn't imply virgin. The Hebrew uses the word for someone who would be expected to be a virgin, but doesn't say categorically it's a virgin. Yeah. And that brings up, uh, without going down this rabbit trail, it does bring up the, the matter of how involved the Holy Spirit was not just in the original um, uh, writing of Isaiah, but also in the process of it, that Hebrew being translated over into the Greek for the Septuagint. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, I, I'm not, I'm not putting my flag on the ground saying that the Septuagint is, uh, is inspired, but it is fascinating that they did use Parthen, Parthenos, Parthenos. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I can't remember the ending, but uh, yeah. Okay. Yes. The word that specifically meant virgin. <laughs> so, uh, so Chris Johnson does say thank you for that answer. Yeah, but we we don't have the manuscripts from back then, so we can't be sure that the church didn't change that word to Parthenos. Uh, it it that might have happened. It's impossible to tell. We don't have okay. a copy of Greek Isaiah uh, from that time. Okay, fair enough. So uh, Nate Warner, who's watching on YouTube, he says this: If the Jews didn't expect Jesus to be born of a virgin. Well, and I guess we could say didn't expect the Christ or the Messiah to be born of a virgin. Does that help to explain why so many weren't looking, especially since they were under Roman captivity and looking for a political leader? What are your thoughts? Well, <laughs> Jesus wasn't like the Messiah they're expecting in so many different ways. I think the, the fact of his, uh, his questionable birth is a very minor one. No one's going to prove anything from that. Uh, Jesus uh, wasn't leading uh, any political movement. He wasn't even um, being a, a great speaker. You know, he, he, he was talking to ordinary people, talking to the crowds, not talking in the temple, not talking to you know to the high and mighty, not talking in the great academic schools. He he must have looked like a, a, a village rabbi who'd got above himself. He just didn't look like a messiah. And then when he was killed by crucifixion, well, that's it. There's just no way he can be a messiah because uh, that, that, that's like saying that someone on death row is the leader of a new religion. It's, it, it just makes him completely worthless. Well, you sure, cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. Yeah, uh, there's a nice scripture to show how bad he is. But you really don't get it if you're thinking that that's why it didn't like people who were crucified. People were crucified naked. It was mm. such a shameful death. And there's no way that you can endure that pain without defecating while you're on the cross. It was a horrible place. As Luther said, that Jesus was born amongst the buzzing flies and died among the buzzing flies. Mm. It, he, he really went through terrible, terrible things for us. And there's no way where the Jew could look at that idea of someone on the cross and say, 
oh, yeah, that's my God. Hmm. And so Christians didn't use the cross symbol for three centuries. The only right. image we have of a cross in the first three, uh, couple of centuries is by someone who's making fun of a Christian and right. puts uh, a, a man with a, a, an ass's head on a cross mm -hmm. and says, Alex Animos, worshipping his God. Right, right. The cross was such a terrible... But we're not talking about the cross. It's That's just another bit of the gospel that you can't ignore because it's not what you'd invent. It's just not... It wouldn't work if you wanted to make it up. Yeah, it, it it really is incredible how counterintuitive the gospel is, uh, how it, it contravened, contravened their expectations then, and it still, it goes against our expectations today. It, it, the, the verse that says it is foolishness to those who disbelieve is still just as true now as it was in the first century. Yeah, but now the cross is cleaned up. You know, we wear it on our necks and uh, we, we put it on our churches. Yeah. We, we wouldn't put a, um, a gallows with a rope hanging down on, our, on the front of our churches. No, right. But then again, Jesus didn't die on a gallows either. He, no, no. But the point, point is that that's, that's the sort of image that people see. Right. You know, we've cleaned up the cross and we've yeah. cleaned up the virgin birth and we, we've cleaned up the, the 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 arguments he had with other rabbis we we see a sanctified jesus he's easier to sell now than he was in the first century and sure well which which is why it's so helpful to do what you did in your book which is to go back and look at the doctrine through first century eyes because this is not this the virgin birth is not a clean doctrine <laughs> it's it's not uh you know it's not a, a porcelain a porcelain figurine um you know sitting delicately on a mantle this is this is something that would have been scandalous and it would have been very controversial and it would have been a barrier to faith for many yeah and the, the, his his very humble birth we talk about a humble birth it was filthy yeah. <laughs> you know when i was in medicine i i um i had to give birth to 12 children i mean help at the birth of 12 congratulations children. oh okay yes yeah <laughs> And it's a messy affair. Mm. And even when you got all the cleanness of a hospital, right. but in, with animals there and, and animals urinating on the oh, straw that you've I just cleaned, it, it, oh, I can't the idea that he was going to be king is just laughable. <laughs> These stories are not made up. You, they're, they're stories which are reported because someone's going to whisper it if you don't say it. So you put it up front. You do what what Matthew and Luke did. You put it up front and you say, "Look, we know you're going to have a problem with this. Here, mm -hmm. it it really did happen, but here's the significance of it." Yeah, that's it. That's it, it. Even the fact that Jesus was born in, or, or that he grew up in Nazareth, would have oh. been uh, would have been a blight on his reputation. And so Matthew grounds it. He goes, "Look, it, it, it was written he would be called a Nazarene," you know, which you know even there he has to find that you know he has to be he has to do some creative wordplay there but um but jesus you know he had an ignominious uh upbringing and and that goes back to his birth uh, he, he had a hard job and the only way you can explain that christianity took off and took over the world is by the holy spirit working mm -hmm. through those people who had to speak these impossible things and tell these impossible stories and explain that God loved us that much yeah. to come down into that filth and yeah. join us. So, David, I did get a question from, this is on Facebook earlier today. 
Uh, David Weber asked this. He says, and I'm going to, I'll put this up on the screen in just a moment so you can see it. But he, he says, I would be interested in a Christian response to leftist smears that the virgin birth is somehow tantamount to rape. How would you, how would you respond to that? Well, rape is when a woman doesn't consent. Mm -hmm. And we know jolly well that Mary did consent in such a beautiful and humble way. May I be your servant. And she was told that God was going to give her this child, and she said yes. She didn't say no. Yeah, so there's the, she, she obviously um, agreed, uh, and you know we still honor her to this day for that. Uh, what do you make of the fact that um, the conception was not uh, sexual, it was not uh, standard biological intercourse? Does that factor in as well? We've no idea what happened. Mm. I mean, pr presumably, something just miraculous happened in, in her womb. Uh, what you know, ha um, uh, uh, an ovum drops down and starts dividing, but it can't just be parthenogenesis because then you get a girl. Something very strange happens there. We've no idea, right? And uh, how it happens, I. Yeah, no, that's and that's that's fair. The scripture does not give us a, you know, a, the, the, the camera moves away from the fireplace at that point. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's good. Uh, but we do know that he was born to a virgin. He was conceived from a virgin. So whatever the method was that God used, which as shrouded in mystery as it was, it wasn't a, a it, it couldn't have been a what we consider a sexual reproduction. Would, would you agree with that or no? Sure. I mean, if it wasn't a human, then it wasn't sexual reproduction. But uh, what it was, no idea. No idea. Okay. Okay. Fair. Um, let's see. Y you know, this is tangentially related. So feel free, David, feel free to pass on this one. But I would actually like to know your thoughts on this. This is a question coming from someone named Shane O'Neill. Here's what he says. Now, I posted on Facebook earlier. I said, what question should I ask David Instone Brewer? And, and I'll read the question verbatim, and then I'll give my interpretation of it. He says, is it related to the two genealogies found in the Gospels, that Mary, a descendant of Jeconiah, doesn't allow him a descendant on the throne by virtue of the, the virgin birth? So here you you do have, um, was it, was it Jeconiah? I, my understanding is that um, okay, so let's let's back up here. So there was a descendant of David who sat on the throne, who was told by Yahweh that he would not have a descendant on the throne forever. The difficulty comes in that here you've got Jesus, a descendant of David, but because he's not blood related to Joseph, he's not a blood descendant of this king who Jesus told would never have a descendant on the throne. Have you interacted with this concept before? And I'd, I'd love to know your thoughts on it. I real, I'm very curious about it. And I'd also like to know what you make of the two different genealogies of Jesus. Is one of them Mary's and the other one Joseph? How do you unpack all this? And I forgive the ambiguity of the questioning, but maybe you can make some sense out of that. Yeah, well, uh, uh, those two genealogies are fascinating. It's not just that um, that they diverge at one point. It's that they're bits missing uh, to make um, the nice pattern of the uh, 14s and things. And uh, the, the two genealogies are important in that they tell you 
it fixes Jesus as a Jew, fixes Jesus in the royal line, and then this wonderful thing that you know that he's not supposed to be descended from this bit of king, but he is allowed to be descended like down this line. Maybe you know it tells such a wonderful story. I love it. It should be true because it's nice. Uh, whether it actually works or not, I don't know. You so you have to have uh, one genealogy going through Mary, one genealogy going through Joseph, which fixes that contradiction. And hey, I, I, we don't know enough to know whether that's right, but it works. So let, let's go with it. But the thing we have to remember is that every single one of those ancestors of Jesus was a sinner. And every one of those ancestors inherited the propensity to sin as soon as they could do anything. As soon as they were toddler asked to do something, they say, no, like all toddlers do. And right. Nobody has to teach them to do that. And when Jesus is born, you just can't find any sin in his life at all. He's inherited all this from all those generations of sinners, and he doesn't sin. Not because he doesn't have that propensity to sin. He has all the same temptations that we have, and yet he doesn't. And that's what makes him God to me, that he can live as a real human and yet leave that part of humanity completely to one side. Yeah, now this... Um... Again, this would be a rabbit trail, man. We we unfortunately we don't have time, but maybe on a, a future recording, um, this would be something where I, as I was reading your book, this was one of those areas where I wasn't sure if I disagreed with you or not, um, it, and that's in your handling of the original sin doctrine, um, and and you make a distinction between original sin and original sinfulness, <laughs> and and I thought that was really fascinating. Um, and and man, I I would oh, I'm I'm peering over the chasm here, and I'm I'm yeah, about. To it, it's got to be for another time. We'll it's got to be. It's gotta be. Yeah. Okay, but um, but I I did think that was fascinating the way you handle that. So anyone listening, anyone watching, please look. Go pick up Church Doctrine in the Bible by David Instone Brewer. Read read it for yourself, and I, if nothing else, well, it's, it's say, very stimulating. Go to BibleContexts.com because every week you've got a new chapter for free. There's uh, three chapters there all the time, or three or four chapters all the time for free, and uh, every week it's a new one. And uh, so you get to read the whole book for free. You just have to read it bit by bit. Well, that, that's incredible. So definitely go check out BibleContexts.com. And, um, you know, uh, we had a couple of other questions come in, but I, I think that they were pretty, the, the questions were pretty much subsumed under what we've spoken about before. But uh, David, I, I have to just thank you profusely for, again, for taking time out of your evening. And for folks who would like to follow your work, um, there's BibleContext.com, which I think is wonderful. They can go and get chapters uploaded to that website. They can read them for free. That's fantastic. Um, what's next for you and how else can people follow your work? Well, the other things I'm working on mostly is StepBible.com or StepBible.org. Uh, which is uh, a way in which you can read multiple Bibles next to each other and easily get through to the Greek and Hebrew without knowing any Greek and Hebrew. And it's, yeah, it's just the perfect way of reading your Bible. You can read an easy peasy translation next to one of these horrible, difficult things which follow the Greek and Hebrew, and you can hover over words and see what the, what the original was and click on it and then search the whole Bible for a word in Hebrew, but see the results in English or Madagascan or whatever your language is. But uh, yeah, 
it's a, a wonderful tool. I use it all the time, even though I've got accordance and uh, the old Bible works and uh, mm. uh, log offs from my computer. I use Step Bible because it's much faster. Oh, this is really amazing. I'm, I've got it up. If you're watching live, I've got it up on the screen. You can scroll over a word here and you can see it in the original Hebrew. You can see how many times it occurs in the Bible. You can click on the word to see more information. This is really amazing. And this is this is free. I didn't have to sign up for anything or pay anything to get this. This is just a free resource. Yep, it's uh, specifically designed for disadvantaged world. Uh, you're getting it because they get it. Amazing. Wow. Well, thank you for creating this. This is really amazing. I I'm going to have to have some fun with this. I'm going to I'm going to explore this um now now uh and don't forget to use the NIV with it as well. Drop down and get the NIV. I, I um, I'm a bit um, biased there because I'm on the committee. Oh, you're on the committee of the of the NIV. Okay, well there yeah. you have it. All right, well David, thank you again so much for for joining us and um, all God's blessings to you and in, in your continued work. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you again for joining me. And um, you know what? Really quickly, if someone has a follow up question based on something that you've said, um, or they want to know where they can get a, a an incredible Santa hat like the one you're wearing that says Bah Humbug. Uh, is there, um, would, you, would you care to share a way that someone could get in touch with you? Yeah, I think if you, I'll be watching the Facebook feed from this podcast. Okay. And so I think that's probably the best place to do it. Okay, wonderful. All right, well, there you have it. Uh, David Instone Brewer, thank you again for joining us. And um, let me just, uh, a couple of housekeeping notes for the Think Institute. If you enjoyed this, if you learned something, please like this video on Facebook or YouTube. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you have any inquiries for me, you can send them to thethink.institute at gmail.com. And then as well, my family and I are support raising missionaries with an organization called Crew. And so if you'd like to partner with us, you can do that by going to give.crew.org slash 101-8841. That's our giving page. If you haven't done so yet, go and check out our website, thethink.institute. While you're there, you can search the back catalog of all of our podcast episodes and other interviews that we've had with um, scholars, thinkers, pastors, creators, and uh, culture builders. So check that out. Thank you for watching. I certainly hope that you heard something that was helpful to you. I know I certainly did. And remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a little pit stop along the way of your spiritual journey. And that, that's about all we have for you today. So until next time, I hope it made you think.